And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Show presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Derek Van Riper here with El Melchior on this Sunday. It is Sunday, May 9th. Uh, because you could be listening to this early in the day, I will remind you today is Mother's Day. So if you have an obligation to provide a nice gift or do something nice for your mother and you haven't done that yet, think of something very quickly. Pause this podcast if you have to. Come back to it in an hour. Do something very nice for mom before completing this show if needed. Let's get to uh, the waiver talk today, Al. We've got a lot of outfielders. Uh, top prospect coming up in Minnesota, sort of leading the way for us this week. Trevor Larnack, who has hit pretty much everywhere he's played in the minors. He got called up Friday, made his debut on Saturday. The injury to Alex Kirilov and Byron Buxton creates a huge need in the Twins' offense. And you know, you look at the short term, it's at least, I would say, a week or two before we're going to see Alex Kirilov get back because he had a cortisone shot on Friday and he's going to try and start swinging a bat in the next few days, according to the Athletics' Aaron Gleeman. Eventually, if everybody gets healthy, that's a big if, Max Kepler, Trevor Larnack, Alex Kirilov, Miguel Sano, Nelson Cruz, that's one too many players for those spots unless Buxton is still hurt and they think that Max Kepler or one of these guys can play center field. I don't think it's Kirilov and I don't think it's Larnack, so it's going to be a stretch to say the least. But if one person stays hurt out of that mix of names that I mentioned and it's not Buxton, Trevor Larnack could have a spot to call his own if he hits enough. So there is some long-term appeal and a good track record to fall back on. What is the interest level and how aggressive do you want to be with your bidding in Fab Leagues this weekend, given all the factors in play here? Well, it's if it's a 15 or even a 14-team mixed league, uh, I mean, not super aggressive, but probably going maybe five or six percent of fab budget so certainly you know more than just um you know a minimal bid <laughs> uh but for 12 teamers for the the reason that you just enunciated that there's there's going to be a crunch there at some point that i would just feel better about going after somebody who's uh, who's got a more secure uh, playing time situation longer term and plus you just never know how a prospect is going to adjust immediately uh, obviously Alex Kirloff got hot really really fast uh, there's no reason why that would necessarily happen for Larnack but um, yeah I think the playing time situation just dampens my my interest for him a little bit more so than for Kirloff who had a clearer path when he came up yeah I think that's a really good way to look at it I do think I'm just generally more aggressive than most with my bidding, so I'm a little higher on the number because, well, it probably depends on the state of your team, right? If you're lagging in offensive production, especially the power categories, you know, you're short on homers, RBIs, and runs, maybe you can push a little more aggressively. And I think this comes back to a conversation I had on Saturday. I was on the Saturday Rotowire show as a guest with Clay Link and, and Todd Zola, and we were talking about all the injuries that have piled up this year. And I think our agreement was we're always looking to make sure we're maxing out playing time but it seems like it's even more important than usual right now because so many replacement situations are not necessarily one guy taking the place of the good player that is now injured and on the IL so if you can find somebody who's getting that higher volume as a fill-in that might carry a little bit of extra weight because in a, a seven-game week, you might actually get all seven starts from Larnack, whereas a lot of other replacement-type players are probably in a platoon, so you're going to get five out of seven, and then the small-side platoon player is going to get the other two starts. Yeah, that is something to to consider. And yeah, maybe because of all the hitter injuries that are happening that I need to kind of rethink uh, my my approach and, and be a little bit more flexible and, and just... Be aware that uh, you know somebody I'm picking up today might be somebody I have to replace in two or three weeks. 
But I do think we, we're probably in agreement that the smash the fab piggy bank scenario is not quite in play here because of those long-term concerns. If we were to get some kind of follow-up on Kirilov that is discouraging and suggests the much longer timetable, maybe that changes the bid a little bit as well. I don't know if we're going to get information like that, though, before FAB runs this weekend. So I do think at least 5% at the low end, I could see going as high as about 10% of a budget if you have enough of a need in a deep enough league offensively, of course, in keeper and dynasty leagues where he's not already rostered. There's extra appeal there because while he could be a little more up and down this year, I could see him having a much larger role in 2022. Let's talk about Harrison Bader for a moment, Al. It looks like I got kind of lucky with one of my reserve picks in Tout Wars because he's showing power, he's showing speed. The reason why I went after him is because I just figured he plays because of his defense. And there's always been an interesting mix of tools, even though he's never really put everything together for us as fantasy players over a prolonged stretch. It's usually power and some speed and not a very good batting average. I mean, the best season we've got so far in 2018 is good. I would settle for this. A 264 average, a dozen homers, 15 steals in 18 attempts. That was over 138 games, and it wasn't even like max volume within those games. A lot of defensive replacement opportunities that season. So if you wanted to say that was where he's headed this year, I'm okay with that. Uh, the slash line is kind of typical Bader. Again, a 233 average early this season, a 273 OBP, but three homers and two steals, doing the things that you really hope he could do. And the K rate's down right now. 33 plate appearances early, four strikeouts. So, yeah, he's still not walking a lot. He's only got two walks. But I'm willing to make that trade off if he's going to put more balls in play. Yeah, um, you know, you pointed out that he's going to get playing time and his path to everyday playing time, I think, is as clear as it's ever been in 2021. So uh, certainly in a in a deeper league, there's a lot of appeal there. I mean, it's a real sort of dilemma if, you know, it's a deeper league and your choices are between somebody like Bader and somebody like Larnack. Um, you know, do you go for kind of the, the steady production or go for, uh, you know, the potential uh, big boom? With Larnack, and I think it comes back to what you said earlier that it really sort of depends on where you are in the standings, how much you feel the need, even though it's still, you know, not even quite mid May, you know, feel the need to kind of throw the Hail Mary. Um, but the thing is, I think Bader, you won't have to bid much because of the reputation that he's developed over the years. So I wouldn't really feel the need to go more than 3% on him. No, that seems appropriate. And there's someone else we, we have on our rundown today that I'll just bring up now who I, I think his career could follow this guy pretty closely. It's Kevin Pillar. And Pillar, for years, because of his defense, continues to find tons of playing time. And the question I put on the rundown is, how does he always find 500-plus plate appearances, even in a crowded situation, even as he continues to get older, even as he continues to show, I think, a pretty flat set of skills at the plate? <laughs> Kevin Pillar always finds playing time. So... I think if you are looking in a situation where, you know, Larnack's out there and then Bader's out there and Pilar's out there, there is a clear difference in bids for me. I think I'm 1% to 2% on Bader and probably looking at Bader over Pilar because with Bader being younger, to me, there's still that chance that he can get better. At this point of his career, I don't think Kevin Pilar is going to change. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable expectation and also less of a chance for steady playing time throughout the season. Like you said, he always does find the plate appearances, but it's probably going to be lumpy. So uh, Bader, as long as he stays healthy, he's going to give you playing time every single week. So yeah, if I'm going 3% on Bader, I'm going at most 1% on Pilar. I love lumpy as a way to describe a player's production. I don't know if lumpy is good <laughs> in any context. I'm trying to immediately come up with an idea like... What's what's good? Lumpy mashed potatoes aren't bad. Yeah, I guess that. But it's like you'd use the uh, you'd call them textured, right? <laughs> I call them lumpy. <laughs> I just I don't know. Kevin Pillar's playing time trend will will have some texture to it. Yes, yeah, that's more positive. It's a more positive word. Lumpy has a negative connotation. I think if you describe a player's body type as lumpy, very negative connotation. So I don't know. It's just something to think about. Uh, it seems like there's a ton of outfielders to bid on this week, which is good because the outfield hasn't necessarily been a source of viable waiver options. We talked about this with Scott Jenstead on the show on Thursday. Uh, Josh Naylor is out there at a good number of leagues. He's rostered in only 10% of CBS leagues. I know he's available in TGFBI and even some NFBC leagues as well. He's hitting 265, 312, 412 entering Sunday. And that doesn't really 
jump off the page, but a couple of homers, eight RBIs, and I think the recent production is why I'm interested. If you look at the more recent splits, last seven days, 269, 345, 538, pull back to the last 14 days, 295, 354, 523. So it seems like after a slow start, especially, he's starting to find it a little bit. And the other thing I like about Naylor, the stat cast numbers have always been pretty good. Last year was sort of an exception for him in the shortened season. Average exit velo is good. Max exit velo looks good. He's barreling balls more than ever. He's got a 10.1% barrel rate. Naylor's never struck out a ton as a big leaguer. Uh, has shown patience in the past, not showing it quite as much early on here. But I think there's enough to like where you can talk yourself into Naylor as maybe even a better option than Bader and Pilar if you feel good about your speed situation. I think that's one huge difference for me is that Bader can run a bit and stolen bases, even if you're getting 10 or 12 from the bottom part of your roster from a player, that's really valuable to have. Uh, but if you're really set on steals, and you're just looking for the best all-around hitter after you get past Larnack. I think there's a good chance that Josh Naylor ends up being that guy. Yeah, I see him as being pretty similar uh, to to Bader in terms of the, the power upside. Uh, and so that's why I've really kind of passed over him up to this point. But, you, you know, in, in you discussing this, this does remind me that I have rostered Naylor in the past in daily leagues. Uh, I, I don't think I have in, in weekly leagues. But, you know, even if I extend this to weekly leagues, like if you, you pick the weeks where Cleveland's got uh, a, a lot of righties facing them in a, in a coming week, then there's some appeal there. And I like the fact in daily leagues that, you know, I can pick and choose the matchups with Naylor because, yeah, he's he's pretty useful against against righties. Uh, but for me, that's kind of where the appeal begins and ends. Still pretty young, though, too. I think there's also that kind of appeal of finding his way as a hitter. During his time in San Diego, never had a spot to call his own, but he does have that in Cleveland, uh, even though they've got a couple of outfielders stacked up at AAA trying to find their way back to the big league roster, most specifically Oscar Mercado. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of watching him as a no longer a prospect, definitely a last year's disappointment, but a guy that if he gets back on track, probably finds a decent share of playing time in the Cleveland outfield. And it could come at the expense of someone like Josh Naylor. Uh, but I, I think there's more good than bad in this profile, given the hit tool, given the developing power, and given the really need help in the corner outfield spots. Plus, he can move back to his natural position eventually and play first base. I still don't think Jake Bowers is a regular big league hitter. So if the outfield starts to get crowded, I think Josh Naylor can be the fallback option to be the regular first baseman. So that bodes well for him too. Uh, the next group of players is sort of the really low percentage rostered outfielders. That group includes Tyrone Taylor, Seth Brown, and Taylor Ward, who I think is pretty interesting, but is likely to get squeezed out of that playing time quickly if he doesn't do something with the limited chances that he's getting. We talked about Taylor on Fantasy Baseball in 15 on Friday. He's started five games in a row since Christian Yelich went back on the IL with that back injury. Billy McKinney can play first base, and there's no reason for the Brewers to force Daniel Vogel back into the lineup. He doesn't hit enough where you can justify it. I mean, he's got raw power, but he's a pure three-true outcome sort of player. So I could see Tyrone Taylor being the fourth guy in the outfield mix. And when you're in the mix with JBJ and Lorenzo Cain and Avi Garcia, those are the kinds of guys that need days off. I mean, you're not going to play Bradley very often against lefties. So Kane's going to be in the lineup in center those days and you'll get Taylor in the lineup and left on those days. But even against righties, occasionally Avi Garcia is going to get a day off. And I think with Kane being as old as he is, he's not going to be an everyday guy either. So it could be a, a case where Taylor let's say the Brewers are playing six or seven games in a week, you could end up starting four or five of them pretty easily. Well, you know, you've just made a really good case because I know when we had that discussion on fantasy in 15, I was really skeptical of the playing time. And, you know, I still think that when Yelich returns that it might uh, be a case where he gets sent back down or, or just doesn't play nearly as much. But yeah, I, I, the way you've laid that out, that makes him a lot more attractive to me in, in a way, maybe other than if you really need security and playing time, he may be the most interesting outfielder on this list. Yeah, just in terms of, of raw tools. And the thing I mentioned on the pod on Friday was that Tyrone Taylor was a highly regarded prospect once upon a time. He was a second rounder way back in 2012. 
A lot of injuries. I mean, he was drafted out of high school, so he's going to be a long road to the big league sort of guy anyway. But yeah, a lot of injuries slowed the development, and you know, you had some setbacks along the way. If you go back to 2018, the year before the rabbit ball, that was the first time he had reached AAA. Hit 20 homers at that level in 119 games, stole 13 bases. He was a 24-year-old, but he wasn't so old for the level that it was totally embarrassing or anything. So he was 10% better than a league average hitter the first time he got to AAA, and that was actually one of his better offensive performances in the minor leagues. And I wonder if the reputation at that point was, eh, he's just a little old for the level. Had a down year with the rabbit ball in 2019, so that's probably why a lot of us wrote him off. I mean, I, I root for the Brewers. I didn't have any expectations for this guy. But we've seen him up and down now in parts of three seasons. He hits the ball really hard, doesn't take terrible plate appearances, and defensively can actually play center field if he were on a team that needed him to. Probably won't have to do it with both Kane and Bradley there. Um, but it's good to have that sort of ability. If you're if you're the kind of guy who's a fourth outfielder trying to find playing time, it helps you a ton to be able to play center field in a pinch as opposed to being limited to both corners. Yeah, you know, and that's a, an outfield that, I guess with the exception of Garcia, is it's filled with players that have injury histories. So that's, uh, you know... He's, he's definitely got a lot more appeal than I realized. And I think I'm guilty, uh, too, of writing him off, sort of like you were talking about. So I think I've been a little slow to come around on Taylor for that reason as well. But again, if the playing time's there, uh, he's got as much of a well-rounded skill set, I think, as, um, as Harrison Bader and certainly more upside, I think. Yeah, if you look at the numbers to the very limited amount of playing time that he's had 11.8 percent is the career barrel right now for tyrone taylor against big league pitching average exit velo leaves a little something to be desired at 85.6 but hits the ball hard when he hits it in the air especially the average exit velocity on flies and liners is where taylor really stands out and that's what matters i i really don't look at the overall exit velo average very much because sometimes you do have players for reasons I don't really understand. They've got big discrepancies in terms of where they rank on the airborne on the airborne uh, hit balls and the ones that are on the ground. So I I do find that stat a little bit misleading. So if he's doing well in the flies and liners uh, metric, that's that's a really good sign. And you know that I am always going to be willing to throw out the average exit velocity number as a Victor Robles honk. Uh, it, is, it is to my benefit <laughs> to not use that in my analysis in a pretty big way. But the uh, flies and liners number, still, it's still underwhelming for the prospect uh, Victor Robles was. But it's still it's not embarrassing. There are guys that hit a dozen homers that have average exit velocity on flies and liners more comparable to Victor Robles. So... No more Victor Robles talk, I promise. Uh, the other names I mentioned, <laughs> Seth Brown and Taylor Ward in the outfield. I think they're kind of similar players. They're guys that have crushed at AAA in terms of power. They're kind of the extra guy on their respective rosters. Brown in Oakland, Ward in Anaheim. Do you think there's any chance Ward actually plays ahead of John Jay where they just use Jay as the clear-cut backup outfielder and they use this time between the Pujols DFA until the eventual promotion of one of Marsh or Joe Adele to say, all right, Taylor Ward, you got three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, whatever that number is. This is your spot. Let's see what you do with it. You know, it's not impossible, but I'm not expecting that outcome. And part of that is based on history, which probably isn't fair to apply to 2021. But also, just from the organizational perspective, I'm not sure how that makes sense because I don't think they're going to block um, Joe Adele or Brandon Marsh if, if Taylor Ward lights it up for two or three weeks, I, I just have a hard time seeing that. So I'm not really expecting that. That, that that's not a likely scenario. And so for for that reason, if we're comparing Ward with Seth Brown, I've definitely got a lot more interest in Seth Brown. I mean, I think that the hit tool is really intriguing for him. Uh, it's just as you mentioned, it's just an issue of playing time. Yeah, and I think with with Seth Brown, we're at least seeing the A's trust him enough defensively where he's not just limited to first base and DH. We're seeing him in the outfield a little bit. He's really done pretty well in that limited opportunity that he's had. Came up in 2019 for a stretch and and held his own. Didn't hit a home run that year, but has five already in 23 games this year. So he's at 274, 333, 489 
in 56 big league games with the five homers that he's hit this year. I mean, I think there's a lot more raw power than that pace would lead us to believe. I think he is kind of a 25 to 30 homer guy over the course of the year. I'd be curious to see if Seth Brown got that playing time if big league pitchers would find enough of a hole in a swing somewhere to maybe push that K rate closer to 30%. If they did, that would cost him playing time, and he'd probably end up on the, the big side of a platoon at best, if not on the bench more often than not. But if they didn't, he could be one of those guys that came out of relative nowhere to be a very good fantasy contributor. Yeah, it's a bit frustrating to me that he is currently stuck in this platoon situation. I'd like to see what he could do with full-time play, but I don't know that I'm going to get to see that. More Brewer talk, uh, Luis Urias, only because there aren't that many middle infielders available. I just want to point this out. Hitting 286, 378, 508 with three homers and 15 RBIs in his last 22 games. The reason his overall numbers look terrible is because he started two for 27 to begin the season, but really pushing things back in the right direction. It doesn't seem like that's a total coincidence that he started to hit right around the time Orlando Arcia was traded to Atlanta, maybe not looking over his shoulder and you know worrying about every start being his last one for a few days has helped him settle in a bit at the plate. Uh, so if he's out there in your league, and you're looking for a guy that can play multiple spots, who's actually producing at an acceptable sort of level. Urias is doing that. Uh, but a former brewer, I think he came up on last week's show. I was a little under the weather last week, to be completely honest. But Isan Diaz uh, still out there in a lot of leagues, walking more than he's striking out. He has a couple of homers now in eight games. He's walking as much as he's striking out. There is a, a path for him to play another position, maybe. I, I, or they could move Jazz Chisholm to shortstop once Jazz comes back. I mean, do you see the Marlins being flexible enough defensively to prioritize Isan Diaz staying once Jazz is ready to come back? I'm really sort of confused on this one uh, with Diaz because it, it just seems like they, that would be the smart thing for them to do. Uh, you know, they're they're a team that's uh, you know, probably better than than a lot of us expected, but you know they really should be focusing on the future and and the group of great prospects that they've got uh, you know coming up or, or currently on the roster. So yeah, it would seem like it would make sense to make room for both Diaz and Chisholm, but they really seem to like Miguel Rojas, and I'm really not sure how you make room for both Diaz and Chisholm without decreasing the role of Miguel Rojas. So. And I think Diaz is going to be the one that loses playing time. I think he would have to really just explode at the plate. Not literally, of course, but <laughs> um, you know, he would really have to do something I think, pretty big. And it's frustrating because when they did acquire him from the Brewers, it seemed like he was really going to be a cornerstone of, of the team's future. And I'm just not sure where he fits. And I want to go back to uh, Arias because in my 12-team, so I want to you know, emphasize that 12-team Tout Wars League, uh, I bid on him a uh, week before last and didn't get him. It was really disappointed because I think I'd mentioned either on this show or on Fantasy in 15 that in more than one league, I'm having a heck of a time finding viable middle infielders. And so just the fact that he's been hitting well lately and that you can certainly fit him into the narrative of, uh, you know, post-hype uh, breakout guy, um, I'm I'm hoping I can get him at some point. Yeah. Absolutely. I think the question I have with Miguel Rojas, too, I know they signed him to a multi-year extension, and I forget the terms of that deal, if it's running out this year or next, but it was a pretty team-friendly contract. I wonder if he's the kind of guy that could be traded to one of those teams that doesn't have an everyday shortstop or one that's not producing, at least. I mean, you could imagine Miguel Rojas in Cincinnati, or you could imagine him maybe in Oakland as a replacement for Elvis Andrews. He's played pretty well kind of going back to last season. He's walked more than ever. He's never struck out that much. Uh, doing some damage in a series against the Brewers right now. Barrel rate's up at a career-high 3.3%. Yeah, so career-high, good. 3.3%, uh, not that good. I mean, he's not there because he's going to hit a ton. He's there because he's a steady presence in the infield and fields the position pretty well. I mean, in terms of stat cast metrics, he's 63rd percentile and outs above average. But uh, I get the sense that he would have to be traded or go into a very bad slump for Jazz to move back over to shortstop. And I think Jazz can play shortstops. I don't, I don't think it's a question like that. I don't think it's a yeah. Jazz move to second base because he can't handle the more difficult position. I think it was more, hey, we got this veteran guy who's a better option. It's better for our young pitching staff to play the better of the two defenders at that position. We'll play Jazz at second for now and kind of figure it out later. That's, that's at least my read on how they're handling it right now. 
Um, the other glue guy that's out there in a decent number of leagues is Nico Goodrum. You're going to take a batting average hit almost certainly to get that power-speed combo, but he's getting plenty of green lights in Detroit, so he could at least be a short-term solution if you're just scrambling, and plenty of people are. I think you're not alone, Al, as far as not having a middle infield that you feel good about. Nico Goodrum could be a short-term source of relief. A couple catchers caught my eye. William Contreras, who I believe also came up on last week's show, up to 22% rostered now on CBS. I think he's definitely in the mix in two-catcher leagues right now because he's young and he can hit, and he's playing a lot in a good Atlanta lineup. So I don't really have a, a strong case against him because the threshold for being a second catcher in most leagues is pretty low. Yeah, that's the thing. If you're getting regular playing time and you're just not a complete albatross on uh, the the categories across the board, <laughs> you're, you're kind of in contention for that number two catcher slot. So yeah, I'm not excited about Contreras, but I don't think there's any doubt that he needs to be rostered in two catcher leagues. And then Danny Jansen with Alejandro Kirk down, also one of those guys that if you're just kind of sifting through the scrap heap on the wire, looking for someone who's playing a lot until Kirk comes back, I would say Jansen can be a temporary solution as well. I don't really trust them enough to want to have my roster long term, but probably better than taking a zero is the, the tagline that I've got on Danny Jansen right now. Uh, I'll co-sign that and, and not go any further. It is such a tepid endorsement of a, a person, and I feel pretty pretty bad about that. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, Al, let's get to the starting pitchers. We have a prospect up in that group as well. Nate Pearson back in the fold for the Jays. And I think they're starting to get kind of dangerous in that rotation if, and this is a big if, if they have a healthy Nate Pearson and if one of their top pitching prospects, Alec Manoa, continues to dominate at AAA. He, of course, uh, pitched at short season ball when he was drafted out of West Virginia in 2019, skipping basically all the minor league levels to go right to AAA, but looks like he belongs there. So if you go Ryu, Pearson, Manoa at some point, you've got a first three in that rotation that would actually be pretty scary, especially in a playoff series. But to get there, Pearson has to stay healthy, and Pearson has to pitch well. We're going to see Pearson pitch on Sunday, and we'll get some results there. If he stays in the rotation, and I assume he will based on needs, he gets Philly at home for his next start later this week. What is your interest level in Pearson? Obviously, you can adjust accordingly once we see what the results look like on Sunday. But are you expecting him to stick for at least a few turns and kind of have to struggle before the Jays would send him back down? Yeah, I think that's probably his worst case scenario. It just wouldn't make any sense to me that they would only let him go out once or twice, I guess, if he were really ineffective. But that's not what I'm expecting. So I think he's there for the long term. And the, the question for me is, how much do I let Sunday's performance uh, affect uh, my bidding uh, on, on Sunday? And, you know, just to look at another prospect, Daniel Lynch, I mean, his, I'm sure, uh, in any, and he is out there in quite a few leagues still. And I'm sure you can probably get Daniel Lynch without having to give up too much at this point because of that last start. And I, I don't know that that's necessarily how it should be. So I think in a way what I'm trying to say here is that I'm going to try to kind of ignore the start on Sunday, at least the, you know, the, the line. Uh, maybe I dig a little bit deeper uh, into the performance, but I think regardless of how he does, unless he, I guess, completely dominates, that I won't start him against the Phillies this coming week. But if I don't already have Pearson rostered and he's available, I'm going to try to go go out and get him. It's tricky, though, because I do think Pearson should be rostered in 12s 
sooner rather than later, and it's just hard to pick up a guy and not start him. But I think that might be the right play because with that Philly lineup is healthy, they can do plenty of damage, as we've seen in recent weeks. So I, I would agree with you. Like You can go get him, but just be very, very careful at this point. Uh, let's talk about Cole Irvin for a moment. I have been just out on Irvin all season long. I know he was good in spring training. I think his first start of the year spooked me a little bit. He caught the Astros for his debut. It was four runs, seven hits, four and a third innings, only two Ks. And then he got the Astros again for his second turn. It was a little better, got a little deeper into the game, but uh, still give it four runs in that start as well. But he's been excellent since then. He's gone at least five innings in each of his last five starts. Uh, four starts now where he's been really good. 29 to three strikeout to walk ratio, one home run allowed. Matchups have been a little on the favorable side. That run includes the Tigers, the Orioles, the Rays, and the Jays, though. That, that's the impressive one. Eight innings with nine Ks last time out against Toronto. How is he doing this? Because Cole Irvin, when I've looked at the profile in the past, never struck me as a guy who had particularly good stuff. Yeah, I don't have an answer to that question, but I do know that I like the results. And yes, that Toronto start definitely assuages any sort of uh, uh, unsureness that I have about him. But this is another one that's a potentially dangerous start at Minnesota. I think in 12s, I'd probably lean against starting Irvin, really just because I think about the types of pitchers that I have on my 12-teamers and I just feel pretty good about them and their track records. Whereas with Irvin, I think you know we're still looking for maybe just a little bit more to, to prove to us that he's good week in and week out. And so with this matchup uh, at Minnesota, I, I wouldn't be dead set against starting Irvin, but uh, I just think, you know, again, the reality of 12-teamer of depth that I probably would be starting somebody else in this place. Anywhere deeper, I'm starting him. Yeah, it's just weird. I mean, at Minnesota, it doesn't mean what it meant coming into the season because of injuries. It's not an easy matchup, but it's not one that you have to necessarily avoid. I'm just, I'm still a skeptic, which makes me feel like a jerk, but the velo's down from where it was last year. You know, it's it's fastball slider changeup, occasional curveballs. I, I just forgot it doesn't have a very good fastball. I'm not sure how he's getting away with throwing his fastball 60% of the time. That's puzzling to me. Yeah, I probably should look into more more of what's behind that, but you got to figure that uh, he must really just be commanding the strike zone ex- extremely well. But uh, you're not alone in that DVR. I mean, he is uh, 60% rostered on CBS, and you know that's there's that's basically saying that he's not really rostered in very very many 12 teamers. There's so there's there's a lot of skepticism out there. There's so many streamers that I like better though, and I, I, I'm just surprised Adbert Alzali is rostered less than Cole Irvin. There's so much more long-term appeal for me with Alzali. I know the results in terms of the ERA being at 450 right now look a little worse at a glance, but talk about two guys and watch both of those guys pitch and then come back and tell me you prefer Cole Irvin because you wouldn't. You couldn't. There's no way. There's no (laughs) chance. Alzali's done a good job this year cutting that walk rate down at 7%, still missing a lot of bats. For home starts, especially when the wind's blowing in, you can play him against pretty much anybody. He's been a little bit unlucky with runners on base, too. I think that's a big part of why that ERA has jumped. I mean, to me, this is a breakout that's actually happening right now, and it's a little bit masked by the fact that he's had that bad luck with runners on base. People are going to point to that Babbitt and say, 207 Babbitt, he can't sustain that. No, he can't. He won't. But he's got a good combination of skills, plenty of job security, and a lot of spots where you're going to feel pretty comfortable using him. All very, very true. And yeah, let's not overrate the the Babbitt because he does miss a lot of bats. So it's a little less relevant for him. And it, it's astounding to me that he is available in a majority of, of leagues uh, at this point, because I think he's, he's just ready for 12 teamers. He's, I think, close to must start. And then this coming week, he's definitely going to start at Cleveland. And unless the Cubs, uh, with with an off day in their schedule, somehow decide that they need to go with the fifth starter, unless that happens, and I, I'm not expecting that to, he's going to get a second start at Detroit. How do you not start Alzale pretty much anywhere this week? Yeah, I mean, even if the one start is only against Cleveland, you feel good enough about that matchup to let him go there, and you get the possibility of that bonus second start, and you get long-term appeal. So I actually like him... A little more than Nate Pearson right now because with Pearson we have to do that that dance where we're not sure if we can use him and then if he struggles badly enough he can go down to AAA for a little while. 
Alzale is up right now. He is pitching well. You want to have him on your team. Uh, in leagues where he's still available, he's absolutely a priority add. You know, 7 10% of a budget even if you need starting pitching would be appropriate in some of those more shallow mixed leagues where he is still out there. A uh, quick question for you about his teammate, Trevor Williams, who I really don't ever like. Do you like Trevor Williams enough against the Tigers to stream him this week and then to send him back on his way to the waiver wire? Well, in theory, yeah. Uh, in 15-teamers. And I, I I think I like Williams more than you do. I've been a little disappointed in the performance so far this year. Uh, but I think there's some promise in the skill set. But uh, the thing is that you're, you know, you're talking about probably not having to give up much in terms of getting Williams uh, in fab this weekend. But, you know, then there's you got the whole roster management question. And sometimes managing these um, these streamer moves is harder than, it, you know, than we, we make it sound. Uh, you know, you'd have to drop somebody or bench somebody. And uh, it's to me, it's probably not worth it to get that one start at Detroit. So, uh, you know, if I had a situation where I had somebody that I was going to drop anybody, somebody that I'm I can put on the IL, I'd probably make the move in a 15 team or otherwise I'm passing. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to be pretty careful with Williams, even though I like that matchup quite a bit. Um, one guy that is on our rundown today that I am also surprised is not rostered more is Tyler Anderson. He's not a Rocky anymore. If you were staying away from Tyler Anderson because you don't trust Rocky's pitchers, I, I get it. I didn't want anything to do with Tyler Anderson back then either, but this kind of looks legit. I mean, uh, he's... He's not a guy you're going to play in every possible matchup. He is a pirate. They are often underdogs, so in tough spots, he has low win probability, and you're going to want to be careful there. But home this week against San Francisco, that's definitely a green light. A good example of when I might reserve him is at Atlanta next week. But don't worry about next week. Worry about this week, because more often than not, Tyler Anderson looks like a viable starter in most mixed leagues, and I don't know if I was ever prepared to say those words, but uh, compared to <laughs> someone like Cole Irvin, I actually believe in more of the underlying numbers and the pitch mix and some of the things we're seeing from Tyler Anderson at this point. I'm with you there. And the thing is, I was one of the probably very few uh, people in fantasy who actually did like Tyler Anderson as a Rocky and, of course, got burned for it a lot. But, uh, you know, I liked the skills and thought at least in, on the road and maybe even occasionally at home that he could he could pull something off. Uh, but yeah, now that he's in Pittsburgh, there's the run support issue. But yeah, the the performance is legit, and you know, and listeners who you know listen to me somewhat regularly uh, on on podcasts know that I'm very fond of the Z contact stat, uh, the rate at which uh, a pitcher gives up contact on swings on pitches in the strike zone. Anything below eighty percent is really good. He's at seventy five point one percent right now. So Anderson's always gotten a lot of swings and misses, but also he gives up a lot of or induces a lot of swings in general, which means that the strike rate or strikeout rate is usually not that low. Um, but the contact he's giving up is not very good quality contact. So there's just a lot to like here um, with that matchup, with the venue, and with the skill set. Yeah, and if you want to compare him to Cole Irvin again, Z-contact percentage for Cole Irvin, 87.4%. And the other yeah, key for not me... so good. Like, Tyler Anderson doesn't throw hard, but guess what? He doesn't throw his fastball 60% of the time. I, I just... I cannot stand the overuse of bad fastballs because that's coaches who are just out of their league getting in someone's ear and saying, establish the fastball. Establish the fastballs. Like, you throw 90. Throw the other stuff. The other stuff is harder to hit. Come on, man. Tyler Anderson gets it. Cole Irvin, not yet. Got to make those adjustments before you can trust Cole Irvin. Uh, here's a blast from the past. Matt Harvey has got a revenge game against the Mets. Is it a revenge game against the Mets, or is it a revenge game for the Mets? Yeah, I left that open-ended. Um, <laughs> I put that in the notes, revenge game. Um, yeah, could, could probably go either way. But uh, yeah, Harvey's somebody that I normally wouldn't uh, consider streaming, even though he's pitched pretty well this year, but it's been with, again, managing contact and not avoiding contact. But the Mets, uh, they're, you know, they're missing a couple of hitters. Now we do have Francisco Lindor and um, Jeff McNeil heating up a little bit. But it's still not a great lineup and not one that has very much power. And the way that Harvey has succeeded is uh, avoiding the hard contact. 
So I actually think between the venue and the opponent and what's been his strength this year that Harvey's somebody I am considering streaming in um, in 15-teamers. He's kind of in the same category as Trevor Williams. I maybe like him slightly more uh, than Williams, but again, it's I, I'm going to have to have somebody clearly droppable or putting on the IL to do it, but at least Harvey's in the conversation. I haven't said that in a few years. Yeah, not a priority add. The concern I would have is that he's getting hit in the zone more than Cole Irvin is, so look out. <laughs> yeah, like what around 90%, I think, which is pretty horrible. But again, yeah. this, the contact has been pretty harmless on the whole. Yeah, oh man, this, this version of Matt Harvey is not a particularly fun version of Matt Harvey to stream because it can go <laughs> so wrong, but he has been a little better than I expected, so I'm going to keep a close eye on him before taking some more chances on the road against the Mets. That one's not for me. I'm with you. I think he's like Williams, not a priority sort of ad. You'd really have to be just churning a bunch of spots and just chasing volume among pitchers to do this. Uh, This next group, I'll kind of run through the rest of the possible streamers that are out there. We've got Wade Miley coming off of a no hitter. Who's going to, you know, have a no hitter tax in leagues where he's available naturally at Pittsburgh too. So that's going to fuel plenty of interest. Joe Ross at Arizona. Merrill Kelly gets the Marlins. Brad Keller, who's been horrible so far, like Trevor Williams, gets the Tigers, probably falls into the same group there. And Jose Urania, home against the Cubs, he's pitching really well, and I'm not quite sure how he's been doing that. Uh, you got Logan Webb and Johnny Cueto. Webb, home against Texas. And then Cueto, his second star back from the IL, gets Pittsburgh. So, out of those guys who are also kind of in this streaming consideration, does anybody really pop for you as someone that you want to prioritize for this week? Miley and Ross for sure. And that's not just, you know, Miley coming off the no hitter or both pitchers having pretty favorable matchups. These are just guys that I have liked. And I'm going to go on a mini rant because I know we don't necessarily have the time for a full blown one, but I got really irked by the Twitter reaction to the no hitter. Oh, you know, another no-hitter, and now it's even Wade Miley. Well, Wade Miley's been good for a few years. He just doesn't strike people out. But he's, again, you know, talked about Matt Harvey doing a pretty good job of avoiding uh, hard contact and, and succeeding with that that uh, formula. Miley's been doing that for a few years and doing it really consistently. So uh, a road start at Pittsburgh, I would have been in if he had like a five-inning start last time out. So I like this a lot. And uh, yeah, Ross, the uh, ERA doesn't reflect it, but uh, I, I like the uh, the underlying skills there. And then I'd add Cueto, but again, I'm going to want to see him. Uh, he, I believe he's starting on, on Sunday. Um, so, uh, you know, I'd want to see that first, but he looked pretty good before going on the IL. So he's probably a third behind Miley, Miley and Ross for me. Yeah, I think it's kind of weird that there's so much uh, disrespect towards Miley. Like, I don't think he's that good, but I don't think he's bad. Like, he's he's kind of a league average sort of starter, and league average starters that go deep into games, so that plays. I mean, look at the teams that have been interested in Miley the last few years. He's gone from the Brewers to the Astros to the Reds. Those are three organizations that have some things figured out with pitching that a lot of other teams haven't figured out. There's probably a reason why those three smart teams have all rostered Wade Miley in the last four years. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in Cincinnati where there was, you know, a competition for the fifth spot and Miley wasn't really in it because he, he had that spot secured. So I think that that says something. And you know, the point I'm trying to make, cause like you did underscore it, like he's not a great pitcher, but there have been many, many worse pitchers to get no hitters. So I just thought some of the snark was, was not merited. You know what it is though. It's, it's struggling in the AL East. His, he was so roughed up in Baltimore, especially in 2017 time in, in Boston wasn't great because it was the low K rate, mediocre ratios like that 15, 16 and 17 stretch, especially I think did a lot of damage to Wade Miley's reputation. He was pretty good before that in Arizona. Like Mm -hmm. once he settled in with the diamondbacks, I remember I covered that team for Rotowire back in the day. So I was writing up a lot of notes about each of his starts, and it was never a high K-rate sort of profile, but he did a good job just inducing a lot of weak contact back then. It's a skill that he's always had, and he's tinkered and found different ways to continue making it work to have a much longer career, I think, than many people would have projected back at that time because he looked like a workhorse who was going to fizzle out with the heavy workloads he was getting as a member of the D-backs. Last one-start pitching question for you. 
Who are you looking at as the most interesting option to potentially replace Mike Fires in Oakland? Because there could be a little bit of long-term appeal depending on who that is as well. Yeah, and it may not be a move that they make right away because they can go uh, in the short term with a four-man rotation. But I would have thought it was Dalton Jeffries. Uh, I saw, and this is probably, I'm, I'm guessing, just their best guess at it, but on uh, roster resource, they have James Caprillion listed as making a Wednesday start at Boston this week. Now, I'm not interested in either one of them with that matchup. But uh, if either one comes up, and I'd say especially Dalton Jeffries, uh, I'm very, very interested in my 15-teamers. Yeah, I think Jeffries, I'm just curious to see how well he mixes his secondary pitches because his fastball velocity is absolutely a concern. I don't want another Cole Irvin. I know it's working for you, Oakland. (laughs) Stop with the Cole Irvin. Stop it. Stop with that fastball usage. Uh, But I I do think compared to Caprellian, for now, I do have Jeffries slightly ahead of him, so I'm more interested if it ends up being Jeffries who gets that opportunity. But I get the sense the fires isn't coming back anytime soon. A sprained right elbow, that's... Not a, a quick injury. I mean, that could easily lead to a surgery of some kind, which is really unfortunate for uh, Mike Fires. I, I would just say that, you know, if we are talking kind of beyond this week, which I think with Jeffries and Caprellian, that's really more what we're looking at, that I'm I'm more interested actually in trying to find uh, Tony Gonsolin out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that makes, makes a lot of sense. It's going to take a couple of weeks for him to come back, but if he's out there in your league and you can afford to stash him, that might be the way to go. And by the end of May, you got a guy that really helps your ratios and gets you a good K rate, too, on a start-by-start basis. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions All right, Al, let's get to some two-star options and some relievers. Two-star pitchers behind the one-star pitchers because there's less long-term appeal with a few of these guys. But Ryan Yarbrough has been in a bit of a love-hate situation with the fantasy community so far this season. Sorry to borrow that phrase from Matthew Barry. Please don't sue me. Uh, You got the Yankees and Mets both at home. And I think half the trick to successfully rostering Ryan Yarbrough is to just leave him in your lineup, especially for two start weeks, because when you think you're going to avoid a tough matchup, he comes out and goes five or six and gives up like one earned and strikes out five or six guys, and it's a great start. And when you think you're getting the layup, we've seen lots against, I think, the Rangers earlier this season, he gets hit because when he's missing his spots, he's going to get hit by just about anybody. So is this the same old Ryan Yarbrough, and are you trusting him this week? Yeah, I am, uh, especially given the two start options. This is actually something that I wrote about in uh, the uh, next week in fantasy baseball for this coming week that the two start options that you can stream are pretty horrific. And the one I really liked was Aaron Sanchez, and now he's on the IL. So it's really down to Yarbrough if he's if he's out there, even with that Yankees matchup, which is scary. But to your point, DVR, uh, he's unpredictable. So I think you just take the the overall picture here, which is somebody who gets a lot of chases, um, doesn't very consistently doesn't get uh, hard contact against him. And I think that, that can go a long way, especially since he is making these starts at the trop. So uh, I feel better about him than the, the other ones we're going to talk about. Yeah, I'm comfortable using him in 12-teamers. He's available in both of my high-stakes 12-team leagues. So I'm definitely bidding. I think you can go 3 to 5%. Whatever you typically go for a two-start pitcher that might actually hang on your roster, I think that's a reasonable range for Yarbrough because he can stick around even beyond two-start week. A little schedule-dependent, I guess, just in terms of it, it, leagues that shallow where you might have a better option that pops for you. But uh, definitely using him for the two-start week wherever I can. The next guy on our rundown is maybe 
more appealing than any other pitcher we're talking about, but I'm just worried about how how viable he's going to be because Luis Garcia, I think, has a spot for now, but his stay in the Houston rotation hinges on the availability of Jake Odorizzi. So it's home against the Angels, which I'm not crazy about, but then home against Texas. And it's a good enough second matchup, and these are good enough skills where I'm actually willing to trust Garcia in 15-team leagues. 12s, I think, are a really tough call. I mean, if we were in a situation where both Yarbrough and Luis Garcia were available in a 12-team league, I think I would actually go Garcia because the matchups are slightly easier, and I think the skills are just a little bit better, but it's close. It is. And so for me, actually, it it's Yarbrough in that situation just because I, I trust what I'm getting for him for from him more. But uh, yeah, Garcia, I think, is in that situation. If for some reason you have room for two, two starters, he's certainly the next in line out of this group. I think I've got too much Luke Weaver on my teams. Um, so if you're in my leagues, he's probably not available. But Marlins and Nats are the two matchups, both at home. ERA sitting over six so far for the season, but the whip's down at 138. Usually you get a 138 whip, you're probably pushing more like a low fours, like a 425 or a 440 ERA. Is there some bad luck here with Luke Weaver, or is this a set of results that he actually deserves given some of the issues he's had keeping the ball in the park? I think that. (laughs) I just don't trust him at this point, and it's not a bad set of matchups at all, but... Um, he's beyond matchups at this point for me. I, I need to see something better from him and, and certainly more consistently. Yeah, now that the Nats have Juan Soto back, that's a pretty big swing. They go from a team you could throw back and start against to one that you probably want to be a little more careful with as a result because that's a pretty big upgrade for them going from you know Yadiel Hernandez and the replacement options they had to one of the absolute best hitters in the entire league. I would have Weaver clearly behind Yarbrough and Garcia, Garcia and Yarbrough, however you want to order those two. Weaver would be a min-bid sort of guy if you want to take that chance. And you're doing it because you think the Miami start's going to go really well, but he just pitched against them, and it didn't go all that well. So <laughs> tread very carefully, which is the, tr- the really the common thread for these last couple guys. you got Martin Perez at Baltimore, home against the Angels. So the home start's a tough one. The road one is a very hitter-friendly environment. I think you brought him up on Fantasy Baseball in 15 as yep. a guy that does seem a little bit different, but this one's an easy no for me. So do you want to try and talk me into Martin Perez? No. <laughs> Good choice. <laughs> no, because exactly what you said about these matchups. At Baltimore, it probably scares me more than it should, but it does. And yeah, I don't want anything to do with uh, him at, at the Angels. So uh, what I, I do think you can do here, because I think that uh, there's not a ton of interest in, in Perez, is that you can just really watch Watch what he does this week because I'm kind of on the verge of, you know, wanting him on my 15 teamers. So if he does well in both of these starts, I mean, granted, then that probably raises his profile for everybody, but but maybe not, maybe not. Um, you know, given the the reputation that precedes him, so it's a it's a wait and see week. Yeah, let's get to Jeff Hoffman real quick. The fast start we saw from him has turned back into more of a typical back end starter sort of ratios. 13 walks in 26 and two-thirds innings. That's probably the biggest skills flaw. Home runs are a slight issue as well. Four homers allowed in his last five starts. Uh, Tougher matchups have really been a problem for him. He cut the Dodgers and the White Sox his last two times out. At the Pirates, nice. At the Rockies, not so nice because of the park. I think that second start wipes him out for me in weekly leagues. If you're in a daily moves league, yeah, you want to jump all over that start at Pittsburgh and then get him off your roster as soon as possible. Yeah, or at least onto your bench. Yeah, I'm there, right there with you. As far as relievers go, not a ton to get into here. It's two weeks in a row where the reliever pool's been pretty thin. Uh, Tyler Rogers, if you're just fishing in that San Francisco pool, I guess you could maybe talk yourself into him getting some opportunities because Jake McGee has not been locked down recently, to uh, put it mildly. Well, Gabe Kapler has said as much that he's going to look to Rogers uh, more in save situations. So I'll I'll take that. I mean, I think even without that statement, he would be clearly the the next in line to take advantage of uh, whatever continued struggles McGee has. So I like Rogers a lot. Again, somebody who probably doesn't get as much interest as he should because 
uh, doesn't strike out anybody. I mean, and with some of these pitchers, we maybe stretched that statement uh, a little bit, but I mean, Rogers really almost doesn't strike anybody out, but he gets lots and lots of ground balls and pitches in a great park. So uh, I certainly, uh, among the uh, saves uh, candidates out there. I like him the best this week. And you're right. It's it's a really shallow pool. Or I should say it's a shallow cove. I mean, I think we're talking, talking about Tyler Rogers. We should talk about fishing in the cove and not in the pool. Closer cove. Yeah. Stefan Crichton yeah, still out there. But we got Joaquin Soria working in high leverage roles. And I still see J.B. Bacoskis, if he pitches well, taking over that job later this summer. But if if you've been holding Bacoskis in a mixed league, I have him in a couple deep mixed leagues. I I'm leading towards cutting him at this point, just saying I'll come back to it later. If he has a stretch of a month where he's awesome and hasn't started closing yet, I'll try to pick him up again then. Try to be ahead of the curve. I think I'm a little too far ahead of the curve right now, and it's, it's not helping me because those leagues don't reward holds or anything like that, and he hasn't been lights out to this point. Uh, we had an injury in Toronto, too. Rafael Dolis suffered a calf injury. He sent for an MRI over the weekend. So this could be an opportunity for Jordan Romano to get back into the mix. They've talked about using the committee all season long, but I was surprised to see that Romano is rostered in just 46% of CBS leagues. So are you interested in Romano as a possible partial closer, at least in spots where he's available? I imagine he will be a partial closer. So that limits my interest, but in leagues, and there are plenty of them where saves are saves. Uh, then Romano's back on my radar and I'm looking to see if it's he's in one of those leagues where he is not rostered. So, um, you know, that said, uh, Tyler Chatwood, I think, would have a shot um, at getting some saves there. But uh, yeah, definitely worth looking at in deeper leagues. And the last name I want to throw at you is Blake Trinan. He did get a couple of strikeouts, pitched a perfect ninth in a 14-11 win over the Angels on Saturday. And if you look at the usage patterns, Kenley Jansen was likely available he didn't pitch the previous two days so what's going on in Dodgerville are we looking at a situation where Jansen is finally I think I've said this a dozen times in the last two and a half years <laughs> is he finally losing the job and is Blake Trinan the guy that you want to go after where he's out there I'm just looking at the, the really cool tool that Rotowire has is you can put all your leagues in there and when you look at the player notes it shows you who in your leagues has a player or if they're a free agent and he's a free agent in just about all of my leagues so what do you think about Trinan as someone that you should throw maybe a 3 to 5% bid at in hopes that this truly is the the time that they're going to move away from Jansen as their closer? I would go closer to 3, but I like this call a lot because it does seem like, yeah, Jansen losing the grip on the role is happening in slow motion here. So I don't know that he, I believe he's going to lose the role. It's not inconceivable he could pitch his way out of it. I don't think that's a likely scenario, but I, I could see a save sharing scenario. And given how many teams uh, are in that same boat, that uh, in, in closer cove, that um, uh, yeah, I liked uh, Trinan as in a week like this where there's not a lot of good targets to throw two to three percent at him. Closer Cove is the worst possible cove you could ever find, uh, really. But uh, the other name that I thought was kind of interesting, Brad Hand finally blew a save for the first time this year. It was more just going through the exercise of who would I actually want to stash? Is it Hudson? Is it Rainey? Probably neither. I don't think I want either one of those guys. Hudson's pitched better than Rainey thus far, so if you're going to go based on Mm -hmm. results, Hudson is the next one up. And he's been the first one to get opportunities when saves have become available in that Nats bullpen in the past. But I don't think Hand, after one bad outing, is in position to be replaced. So I don't think there's necessarily anything actionable there. It was just something that I found interesting. That Hand has been better than people expected him to this point in the season. Yeah. And I, you know, my first reaction and you uh, putting this in our rundown was, you know, yeah, I, I you know, I've been kind of waiting for Brad Hand to, to lose his grip, uh, pun not intended there. <laughs> yeah, um, right. But uh, <laughs> it really wasn't. But uh, yeah, you know, it bears watching. And I, I would agree. I think Hudson is the one to speculate on. Not this week, but, you know, a week or two down the line if the situation calls for it, because he does seem like he is clearly positioned uh, to to be there to, uh, you know, take over if need be. So, uh, yeah, that one should be watched for a while. Well, so there you have it. A full breakdown of what we're seeing going into Sunday night's waiver run. Of course, things can change throughout the course of Sunday's games, as they often do. On Twitter, Al is at LMelkYourBB. I am at Derek Van Riper. Uh, if you've got questions for us, be sure to send those our way on Twitter. Uh, or you can send them to fantasypods at theathletic.com and just use the subject line 
fantasy baseball podcast that'll make those questions show up and we can answer those on a future episode whether that's a thursday a sunday or even an under the radar on tuesdays so for el melchior i'm Derek van riper under the radar is back on tuesday As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.